From Vintage City Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, it's the Vintage Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Greg Sanders. Bible's out. Let's go 1 Corinthians 14. We don't have a tremendous amount of time because, well, I don't know, because it was awesome and the Holy Spirit took over. That's why. So, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40, we've been looking at this passage where Paul is talking about what it looks like when we do this, when we gather. Some passages, Paul talks about us as the family of God, and those might be willing to be superimposed into our homes, but this particular passage is really about when the church gathers. So, He says, well, my brothers and sisters, in verse 26, let's summarize what I'm saying. So he's going to bring it all together. When you meet, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given. One will speak in an unknown language, while another will interpret what is being said. But everything that is done must be useful to all and build them up in the Lord. So the priority when we gather together, according to Paul, the priority of these gatherings, of church gatherings, is to build people up. The word here for build up is to architect. Think about what an architect does. Architects look at a situation, whether it's an old building, whether it's a blank slate, and they consider what is possible, and then they make steps to get there. And so Paul's statement here is, when we gather, the attitude Not just the attitude, but the function we are to have with each other is to learn to see each other, not through the lens of where we are and what's going on, but through the lens of what is possible. It's an attitude of potential. What would it be like? How How many are like me and you were born with the gift of critical? And one of your awesome gifts is you can walk into a room and instantly know what's wrong. You can meet somebody and you have the supernatural ability to know what's messed up in their life. And and while that sometimes can mask his discernment, Paul says, what happens if we come together and our entire focus and agenda is to build each other up and to ask the question, what is possible? And I'm going to help you. I'm going to put the necessary things in your life to help you get to where God wants you to go. Because the truth is he has a dream for us. Our Father has a dream for each of us. And so if we apply this to each other, it means we have to become like Jesus and see each other through the lens of grace and compassion instead of analysis. There's a a tendency in us as people to get a little clinical and a little cold. And sometimes it shows itself like, well, the reason you're where you're at is because you made dumb decisions. Which might be true, but what happens if we look at somebody and go, look, hey, I know who God's called you to be. I can see the dream of God for your life. Can I partner with you to help you get there? And begin to engage each other with an attitude to architect. So Paul, as he he goes through this, is going to give some protocols. Protocols are really rules for engagement. So Paul is honestly talking about this event, this meeting, and his rules for engagement are 
The first one, uh, no more than two or three should speak in an unknown language. They must speak one at a time. Someone must be ready to interpret what they're saying. But if no one is present who can interpret, they must be silent in your church meetings and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three prophesy and let the others evaluate what is being said. But if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who's speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak, one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that the people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can wait their turn. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the other churches. So obviously, as you hear the language, there's this sense of preference for each other. It's very clear in Paul's language that He's inviting us to honor each other. I would say the first protocol is honor matters. What does that mean? It means we all step into our gifting. In fact, you can't read that without sensing that there's an eagerness to, to function. We're all listening and hungry to flow in the gifts, but never at the expense of honor and courtesy towards each other. Just a simple rule to live by. Paul says, the, the byproduct of this is that everyone will learn and be encouraged. And I would say this, the protocol number two is that we, when we gather, should come with a positive, teachable attitude. Because the goal is to learn and be encouraged. And how many know it's really difficult to learn if you're not teachable? To be teachable means I understand I don't know everything. Men, say this with me. I don't know everything. I, I just gave you a pass on that one, ladies. So Paul's statement is, is, be teachable. Come with just an open heart to learn. I could, what happens if we come every gathering, every time we gather going, I'm just excited to learn what, what God might want to do. Show me something new, Lord. Bring revelation. It's just such a simple, childlike wonder where we don't come in stuck in our ways and, and, and a little stuffy. We're just like, I'm just here to learn and be taught and be positive. Here, I can tell you this. Proverbs says, every heart knows its own bitterness. What does that mean? It means quit sharing it because no one else can understand it anyway. It means make a decision to be positive and teachable. The third protocol, as Paul says, remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirits and can wait their turn. For God's not a God of disorder but of peace. Here's what I see in that. There are no attitudes of offense allowed. We're in control. We can make room for each other. What that really gets to is if you look at the uh, syntax of what Paul's saying, he's saying, I had something I really thought was important and I wanted to say it, but I didn't get my spot. And it's easy to get offended if I didn't get my spot. And what, what offense really, really shows is where my identity comes from. Offense reveals where my identity is rooted. When my identity is rooted in the Father, being with Him and with His kids is satisfying. When my identity is rooted in what I do or in my function, when my function gets trumped, all of a sudden I'm hurt because my place that I get my identity from wasn't allowed to flow. Does that make sense? And so Paul's statement to the church is, learn to walk in a simple grace. That When you show up, just say, Lord, I'm here to serve, here to be a part. If you have a way for me to be useful, cool. If not, great. And that protects us from offense. Offense is an evil, evil animal that the enemy loves to use. And the, way, the reason the enemy loves to use it is because when you fish for trout and you use worms on a hook, they bite. It's a great lure for trout. 
And I would say that offense is a great lure for the people of God. The enemy has had history and proof that people will bite on it. And we have to be responsible in our hearts to say, I will make no allowance for an offense. Living offense-free is about learning to live with easy expectations. When my expectations aren't met, the only way I don't get offended is if I say, hey, you know what, Lord, it's cool. I was here to serve. Amen? Got quiet. Paul shifts gears and he says, uh, this is the fun part. This is the part I promised you we'd teach. Women, be silent during church meetings. Yeah, that's exactly what it says. Women. Here, let me, let me just front load it. I don't think that's what it means. And we're going to talk about that with the time we have left this morning. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions to ask, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Do you think that the knowledge of God's word begins and ends with you Corinthians? Well, you're mistaken. If you claim to be a prophet or you think you're very spiritual, you should recognize that what I'm saying is a command from the Lord himself. But if you do not recognize this, you will not be recognized. So, dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Okay, everybody take a deep breath with me. Wow. Here's the question. What's actually being said here? I think there's something that Paul is talking about here that we are not privy to. What do you mean? 1 Corinthians is a compilation, most scholars believe, of three letters that were written by the people of Corinth to Paul, asking questions, creating scenarios, saying this is going on, how should we handle it? We don't know what those letters were, but we know that Paul will say in Corinthians concerning the matters you've written to me about. So we know that they were asking questions. So there was things happening, we just don't know what those things were. The word hermeneutics is a word that's used in seminaries and Bible colleges, and it, it deals directly with understanding a passage of Scripture. What did it mean? There's a rule in hermeneutics, and the rule is this. We can only apply meaning from a passage once we have understood and dis discerned what the original listener would have understood. It cannot mean to us what it didn't mean to them which means I can't just grab a verse and go, that's an awesome verse, here's what I want to say it means. I need to go do the due diligence to find out what did it mean to the original listener. What we know from looking at 14, what we know that Paul was dealing with, what we can extrapolate out of the things he's saying is that there were outbursts happening. There was kind of a chaotic culture. There was insubordinance in the culture. People weren't listening, they weren't under authority. There was an unteachable spirit in the Corinthian church. They were coming in and, and an awful lot of arrogance in the spirit. They were over-inflating the prophetic, so much so that they were, they were placing prophetic words above everything else. And Paul says there was so much chaos going on in this Corinthian culture that it was actually diminishing the expression of the Holy Spirit among them. And so all of this passage is calling them into a place of more decency and more order how many grew up in, in, in crazy charismatic cultures? How, you, here's what I would define as crazy char charismatic. 
There were times when I was growing up where it was very obvious that the weirder it got, the happier people were. The more we felt defined by that movement. Now, I'm not bashing that or criticizing it. I'm just saying Paul seems to be saying to this same type of mentality in Corinth, hey, let's dial it back and have some protocols and some decency and some order. So I think that's the reality of what's going on. So how do we take this verse in 34 and 35, women be silent in the church, and actually understand it in our day and in our time? Could you see with me and understand with me how dangerous it could be to just grab this, take it in its literal form, and assume it's to be superimposed across the ages? Could we see where that could be a hurtful, dangerous thing? This, and, and it's actually an unbiblical way to apply the scriptures if we don't know how it was understood and what the situations were. So, in our teaching teams, we've been chewing on this one for a while. And we meet on Thursday mornings, there's about nine of us that meet together, and so we decided a few weeks back that we wanted to dive in and make this a bit of a conversation, and so um, the teaching team and I decided, you know what, the best way to do this is we need to probably have a representation in this uh, that, that is, is equal. So I wanted to invite Megan Engelstad, who's part of our teaching team, she's going to come up and she's going to help share with me on this one. So Megan's role in the teaching team is um, she... Uh, I just love what she does. She has this ability to just keep it real. <laughs> like when it gets a little like, you know, if you've ever sat in a teaching team, it can get a little goofy spiritual. And she'll just be like, yeah, I don't think that's what it says. And she's kind of the resident history nerd in the room. Uh, and so she will always bring out like the what, is the, what was the original, what was the first century, what was going on there. And so I've just invited her to share a bit, introduce who she is, and talk a bit about what was going on in the first century. So I'm very excited to be talking to you guys today. Um, I am married to um, my husband, Andrew, for 15 years. I have a son, Matthew, 10, and a daughter, Anna, 7. Before I was a mom, I was a middle school history teacher, and it was, I loved it. It was a great time. Um, you get to understand people at a whole different level at the age of 13. Um, I also worked um, as a youth pastor, and I also worked in Christian radio, so I have had some work in ministry as well. Um, as a teaching team, we would really delve into this, and, and I realized that when I started, um, when we started talking about it, it just created a very visceral response that I was actually surprised by. And I believe many of you, like me, could probably um, understand and have felt the struggle in the church with this passage. And so I just want to bring you into the life of a woman in first, um, first, century, um, first century church. Um, women were seen as being a commodity. Um, they were just kind of a step up from being a slave. And they were not allowed um, to be formally educated. The extent of their education was learning how to run a household. Also, they were not allowed to um, uh, study Torah, which was the scriptures, and nor were they allowed to uh, learn under a rabbi. And so um, something that Jesus does, which I love, is that he reaches out to the heart of people and the heart of women with compassion. And in Luke um, 14, 18, Jesus says about himself, quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And Jesus validated and also, I'm sorry, Jesus identified and he validated women in a way that was revolutionary for his time. And I believe that the freedom that he was bringing was not only going to be spiritual, but it was going to be a physical freedom. And um, it's, I see that when he, he goes through cultural, spiritual, and physical um, ways that they had set up for thousands of years, and he invades that with his love and with his compassion. And he was authentic toward the people, to the heart, and to males and females. And so... Um, all were be allowed to be free in his presence, and that included um, women, it included men, it included slaves, it included citizens of Rome, it included non-citizens. They were all considered free and equal in the sight of Jesus. And it was so revolutionary that I feel like um, women struggled even with understanding it. And if we take the passage of Mary and Martha, and we see that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, captivated by her Savior teaching. She's being allowed for the first time to be able to be taught by a rabbi, to hear scripture. And Martha comes out a little upset because Mary's negating her duties that she should be doing. And Jesus, with compassion, looks at her and says, Martha, shift your thinking. She's choosing the better thing. And so later we'll see in John 11 that Martha chooses the better thing. She acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. And so if we we think about that, that's what's going on with Jesus. And we look into Corinth. The way that the Jews lived was diametrically opposed to how people lived in Corinth. It was a very hedonistic lifestyle. The women, um, well, everybody worshipped Aphrodite, which was the main goddess in Corinth. And so in that, the temple worship was very chaotic, was very seductive, and... um, And so it permeated into the church. And also women are stepping in now to a culture into what we, I'll just say loosely, just Christianity. Um, They're being able to be educated for the first time. And so it somewhat makes sense where Paul says, go to your husband and ask him. He's going to be able to tell you. He's the one that's educated. It's going to create a lot less disorder during the service, and you'll be able to go get the answers that you need ad nauseum. So um, at this point in time, it's amazing because now both men and women are able to be in charge of their own spiritual walk. Before that, it was always something that they relied on the priest on a sacrifice, on something they did, on something that they were maybe thought that they were worthy of or unworthy of. 
but it had to do with that. And so now there's a responsibility for the individual to claim their own relationship and their own, um, their own spiritual walk. So if we, we talk through this, we have to realize <clears throat> Paul is addressing a new culture, freshly established. There's a lot of things that were unknown. They were just figuring it out. He's dealing with a tremendous amount of chaos and trying to bring order to it. The temple worship that, that they were, the Aphrodite worship, women were in the roles of authority and they were using their sexuality as part of the worship. They were bringing that into the Corinthian church. The, the Corinthian church is, as scholars have studied it, most scholars believe the Corinthian church was guilty of having sexual activity in their worship settings. I mean, it was, it, they were so confused coming out of a pagan culture. And so Paul's trying to speak order into this chaos. The concern I have is, I think throughout the years, and I'll tell you, this is one of those line in the sand moments where I'm just saying, this is what I believe the scriptures teach. I think what's going on through history is that there is a teaching in scripture that Paul will give about headship in the home, which is gender roles within a marital situation, within the household. He talks about men being the head and, and the challenge for wives, voluntarily surrender to your husbands. And, and we, we teach on that a lot. We fail to teach on the fact that what that really means for someone to voluntarily surrender is it means your leadership style is so attractive that a person wants to follow you. We never talk about that one. We always talk about wives submit. So another conversation, another day. However, what I see happening through the history of the church is that conversation and this verse gets cross, they get commingled, superimposed on each other, and all of a sudden we're trying to take household order that was specific to a marriage because we all know that the scriptures don't teach every woman in here is to be submitted to every man. That, right? Ladies, say with me, yes, we understand that, yes? Right. That's just ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. But what I think the church has done instead in, in in an effort to try to understand it, is forgotten, in my opinion, to ask the question, what was going on that was specific? And if we look at it, there's two places Paul deals with this. One is Corinth and one is Crete. Cretans were worse than Corinthians. Paul says of the Cretans, everybody knows they're all liars. That's a pretty broad statement over a city. They're robbers and liars. They were an incredibly pagan culture, very similar to Corinth, but worse. This is the only two places Paul will say this. This teaching in this style is unique to Paul. It's the only time it comes up. That doesn't mean we throw it out. It just means we have to learn to ask the question, what was going on that we don't know? Because if we pull it out, extrapolate it, superimpose it on the church, it creates so much wounding. And, and, and I think it's wrong anyway, because if we look at what Paul says in Galatians, he says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all, all of us, one in Christ Jesus. If I look at the work that Jesus did, if I look at the pattern of Jesus, I would say this. He seemed to be very strongly about bringing equality, creating value, saying to sons and daughters, I love you and you matter. It doesn't, for me, at all track with his character for him to say, guys, you talk, ladies, shut up. But it would make total sense to speak that into a culture that's absolutely chaotic, that's upside down because of pagan influence, and Paul's stepping into a very specific situation saying, for your gatherings, this is what needs to happen. Does that make sense? I'm going to tell you straight up, I don't think this passage means was ever intended to be overlaid to the church at large. 
That doesn't mean we throw it out of Scripture. It means we understand it specifically. Now, I know some of us have grown up, I, I, grew, up under the, I grew up under churches that just refused to talk about it. They took what I called the chicken way out. We just won't say it. We could have done that. We could have skipped this part and went, yep, it's just bad, we're moving on. Our discipline here has been, if it's in the text, we're going to talk about it. Hard or not, if it's in the text, we're going to talk about it. As a family, my challenge to us, go study your Bibles. You will learn that there are very strong camps in these conversations. For me, Greg Sanders, I'm just saying I believe to live this out in a literal view is wrong. My heart is to pattern and model what Jesus did, which is to say to all of God's kids, come on, step into your gifting, be who he's called you to be. We're stronger together than we are split. All right, let's stand. That 50% clap might be representative of how it's viewed. I love you guys, love the ability to discern the scriptures, to tackle tough issues. Here's the deal, you always know the case. If this made you so mad that you have to send me an email, send it. Let's talk about it. If you don't, if you don't understand it, or you say, hey, I'm super confused, let's talk. My goal for us is to be a family that understands the scriptures and knows how to live them correctly. I'm not very concerned about being popular outside of this room, so I don't care what anybody in the podcast world cares. I just don't care. I want to be who God's called us to be in Fort Collins in our day and in our time so we can be a church that shapes and changes a city. So, Father, we stand before you today. We love you. We honor you. We're so grateful for your word. Holy Spirit, we are always doing one thing. We're working to understand the scriptures. Lord, we see in part, we know in part. We're reliant upon you to teach us and lead us and guide us. Lord, if anything that's been said today grieves your heart, causes you concern, I ask that you would allow it to be forgettable. But Lord, if there's things that needed to be set right, if there's freedoms that needed to be brought, if there's daughters in this room that needed to hear for the first time, hey, you're viewed as an equal before your father. Live into that place. And Lord, I pray that you would give room for that in our hearts. We honor you. We love you. We bless you. May your face shine upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. See you Wednesday. Thanks for listening. For more great content, please visit us on the web at vintagecitychurch.com.